let's uh, let's get going and uh, bring back our speaker. Thanks very much. Thanks, Ian. Ah, yes, with no more ado. Uh, uh, Hello, my name is Henning Mundel. Hi, Henning. And uh, Trevor, in your talk, while you seem to decry the linkage of uh, economics and politics, and uh, with a few perhaps major exceptions in this world, um, not, yeah, for example, mentioning China, which has this weird political uh, communism, but uh, economically social market economy, and I don't know who really understands what that is. 20 years ago, world communism collapsed. Mm -hmm. Are we now witnessing the collapse of capitalism? And what's next? Is that then the time for world socialism? Hmm. Well, good uh Good quick question there. Uh, yeah, I think actually just quick comment on China. I think what China actually has is I would refer to as state capitalism. Uh, and in some sense, communism actually paved the way for the kind of rapid economic development they've seen because having highly centralized uh, administration allows for doing things rapidly. And, and really what we've seen there is kind of the uh, industrial revolution of England, uh, except it's on steroids. So, you know, they've done it in like 10 years or something. So um, what is what is going to actually transpire? Well, I guess um, the worm that's going to come out of the cocoon, we don't know yet. Uh, but we were just talking at the table here. Then some interesting ways, the the face and the problems of both communism and capitalism looks very much the same. You know, a kind of reliance on uh, mass production technologies, uh, centralization of authority, uh, ultimately even such things as uh, long lineups to buy things. You know, we, I was saying we used to laugh at, you know, these pictures of people in Moscow lining up, uh, you know, to buy a loaf of bread. Well, I don't know, how many times have you been to grocery stores or something and found yourself lining up in long lineups to buy things now? So there's there's a kind of weird thing where the two systems seem to have engendered many of the same kind of problems. Uh, I don't know what the next kind of uh, system is going to be. Uh, I think there are certain things that legitimately can be globalized. I think there's certain things that uh, legitimately it's not possible to globalize. And I think one of the great problems of the neoliberal experiment, going back to Ricardo and Smith, was the application of macroeconomics that the entire world can be run as one economy. I'll give you a quick example of that. Uh, Ricardo's idea was comparative advantage, of, as some of you may know, where uh, a region or a country of the world should specialize in what it does best. And so let's have Kenya forever produce tea, and that's all it does. Right? I mean, this, this is craziness. I mean, because there's real people actually live on the ground in all of these communities, and you can't run the world like just one great manufacturing factory, right? Uh, so I think some things will remain global, technologies, things like that. A lot of other things are going to become local. Part of that is a response to the environmental crisis and to the cost of actually transporting. But ultimately, the, the way I think we are going, and if that's social democracy, so be it, but I think a democratization of not only the way our politics operate, but the way that our economics operate is ultimately the way to go if we're going to save ourselves. So, great question. Thanks. Hi. Uh, Trevor, my name is Stan Sawicki. Hello, Ian. A comment and then a question. My first com my comment, first of all, when I walked in those doors about an hour ago, 
I was merely scared about our economic system. Now I'm terrified. <laughs> no, not I, I really, maybe but. should feel good about that. I don't know. Okay. Also, thanks for recommending those books. Here's my question. When the things started to happen in the States and banks started to collapse, the Minister of Finance and bank presidents and etc., etc., rushed to the microphone and said, don't worry, Canadian banks are okay. Mm-hmm. We're not like the bank down there. Mm-hmm. We're okay. We're regulated, etc., etc. However, I've been watching the stock market for the last three or four months, and one or two of the shares I have are bank shares. And they haven't tanked, mm-hmm. but it just keep sliding down. Mm-hmm. Are they going to tank too? Oh, gee, now you're wanting financial advice. I should charge for this. <laughs> See, there is a way to make money out of this recession. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think what you're seeing right now is uh, the continuing effects of, of, in, of uncertainty. Uh, I said a few months back when everything had dropped down around 8,500 points, and the Dow and the TSX are about the same, actually, somewhere in there. I thought they would both probably stay in and around that range for a time, but with going up and going down, and that's basically what they're doing. Uh, if some of the recurrent uh, or the, the current kinds of uh, stimulus packages don't show some kind of return, then you wonder, well, are some people going to get even more nervous and then things start to drop? Because a lot of this is psychology. One of the things that actually mainstream classical economists for whatever weird reason, don't understand, is that they're dealing with human beings, right? And so a lot of this really is psychology. People are reacting as a, as a herd here. And so kind of outside of the textbooks, economists agree that human beings are irrational, but the textbooks are always based on the idea of this, this rational man as a spender and buyer and all those things. So it's, it's a model, again, that so fundamentally doesn't work. Um, there was another question in there. I'm, I, I suspect I've probably uh, – but, but I am sorry I've terrified you a lot. Again, it's an opportunity and not a buying opportunity. So, <laughs> Hello. My name is Isaac Mohanan. Hi, Isaac. And some things I'd like to expand or I'd like you to expand on. Mm-hmm. It's a grim picture that's painted, but like you said, it has opportunity to it. But some of those ambiguities, protectionism. I think everyone's encountered euphemisms. War against terror is a great one. Um, Who's protecting? We have large multinational companies that, as you say, are already in the government, and we want government to regulate. That's, yeah, I can just see giant monopolies springing up, and the corporations will be, yeah, we're cool. We'll take care of this. We've got this under control. Yeah, protectionism, another euphemism for, trust me, you're a corporate surf. Mm -hmm. So... Something on your thoughts of that matter. And two, it's related, so I hope I'm not considered as two questions. Here's the thing. We have the same scenario. We have all this funny money, this debt money, essentially. We've got credit, and we've got a system that works on it. And as far as I can see, neither the American nor the Canadian governments really want to change. They want to increase spending. But actually coming up with a new blueprint to embed resources into the community, mm-hmm. that's not even spoken about unless talking about small-scale social theorists. Is there Mm. any blueprint for it, any groups, anyone who's actually working on that? Mm. 
I suspect there are some groups out there. They tend to be fairly small and not uh, terribly well healed. That actually is a real benefit because it means it's, they're less co-opted. Uh, I think you point a really good uh, have a really good question there that has a, has a embedded its own answer. We keep being told that this is a credit crisis, and and I think we need to think about this a little bit differently. Uh, as I said, I, you know, a part of my talk was about this is really a a problem of social stratification of inequality. Right, and that's why we've got to this kind of credit thing. The other thing is that the markets and the real economy actually do have a relationship, but it's not as direct a relationship as as we've seen. Uh, there's certain kinds of players that play in uh, the market, the the big traders, the TSX and the the Dow and all that. But there's a lot of other stuff goes outside. It's not that the real economy, in a sense, can protect itself totally from that. But there is some differences there. And so the big players, to some extent, are, are really hurting right now. To your question about protectionism, my quick uh, comment here, because, again, I think it's a great question. I think when people tell you protectionism is always bad, you have to think about, again, who's being protected and who's not. It's a little bit like the old arguments about uh, free trade, again, versus protection. Well, free trade benefits some people, and it hurts some people. And protection benefits some people. And it hurts some people. There's, there's winners and losers depending on what kind of policies you actually pick there. The fact is under free trade and under all these global agreements we've had, basically what we've been doing for the last 30 years is protecting and, and enhancing the benefits of large corporations with large amounts of capitalization who can move around the world and manipulate things. And, uh, and the real people who have paid for that then, the losers in that, have quite often been local communities, small businesses, uh, you know, governments, et cetera. So I think we have to think critically about, you know, that, that whole question that goes on there. Finally, uh, protectionism comes in all kinds of different forms. Uh, there's, of course, tariffs that you can set up. But in many of the neoliberal uh, trade negotiations, for a lot of neoliberals, uh, such things as minimum wages, public-supported hospitals, uh, you know, public schools, you name it, any of those things are viewed as kind of unfair trade advantages, and they're a kind of protectionism, <laughs> which I think is really bizarre. And most people wouldn't think in those terms that that's how they wouldn't see it. But that really is the neoliberal way of thinking about it, that anything that protects local communities and the public interest is somehow unfair or wrong. So, thanks. Thank you. Hi, Trevor. Trevor Page. Thanks for setting the scene, Trevor. I wonder if you'd like to now speculate on the effect of all this on Alberta politics over the next, say, five years, and how is it going to affect us all here? Well, I do hope Sackpaw will continue. Uh, what's going to happen in Alberta? I think the Alberta government is, uh, it's interesting. I said before that even Ralph Klein has said, well, he would deal with this uh, decline differently than he had in the early 1990s. Uh, early on, uh, at least a few weeks, a few months ago, the Alberta government was, uh, they kind of ran a flag up the pole to see if anybody would salute her or whatever the expression is. Um, and uh, they were talking about cuts. And the response from the public right away was, oh, just a second, we've seen this show before, we didn't like it. And so the government kind of backed off from that. And so now they're talking about, okay, now we're going to protect Albertans and we're going to actually spend in different ways. I think they're kind of sorting their way out too. Now, partly, 
of people in the Alberta government are, I think, feeding off of, and again, uncritically, but feeding off of this is the way it, the game is now being played. If you remember back in the 1990s, the reason the Ralph Klein government made all the cuts at the time was that was what everybody was doing, right? I mean, that was kind of, that, that was the prescription for the problem. And also, what's the Alberta government doing now? Because I suspect they really don't have an awfully deep bunch of deep thinkers there. They're looking outside, and they pick up the Globe and Mail, and they flip on the TV, and there's Obama, and blah. Oh, right. They're spending. Okay, I think that's what we should do. So I think that's where they're coming from. Uh, the bigger question in terms of where politics goes in the province is, does the fact that a government in office since 1971 and anyone who's lived here long enough has seen this show again and again and again of ups and downs and ups and downs. And, you know, we ride the boom and bust cycle forever. At what point will people say, well, is there anyone has a different way of thinking about how you run an economy, a society, a government? Uh, and, uh, you know, maybe some new politics will come out of this. Uh, although I have to say here, part of the problem, uh, because I study you know, political movements and parties, is you need an organizational structure to get an opposition going. And uh, after this many years, uh, frankly, many of the structural underpinnings for getting a movement off the ground have been so gutted. Uh, if, if you don't know this, this entire province is basically one corporate entity. You know, there is almost, again, no space outside of that corporate box, which is Alberta, and that's, that's the problem. Uh, so maybe we'll get invaded by another province, though, and those invaders will bring some ideas or something. <laughs> yeah, <come on. laughs> Excuse my coughing here. I'll try not to cough into this thing, but I, my students are getting used to this now. Rebecca Edwards. I'm a student Hi. at the university. I love the way you ended the, the speech um, about the optimism. We are all part of this. We can get out of it together. It's an opportunity. However, you sort of ended it right there, and I'm not really sure what, if anything, we can be doing as small consumers in our mm -hmm. larger economy. Could you expand on that for me, please? Yeah, I think uh, I said before that in some sense the things you do to protect yourself all added up together, even if you don't recognize it as a movement, may actually have some effect. Uh, so, for example, um, one of the things I was saying over the lunch here is I think it, it's unfortunate that we seem to be showing a propensity to be able, uh, only able to juggle one ball at one time. Uh, you know, so right now it's the economy, but a year ago we were talking about the environment. Well, the two things are actually really, really related here because, in fact, what you're seeing is kind of the collapse of the global economic exchange system. Uh, but that's also related to the fact that we have uh, created some pretty significant environmental problems because to ship things everywhere costs an awful lot of money. You're using all kinds of fuel that is disappearing, and, of course, we know there's dangers and problems with that. So uh, as a quick thing for uh, local consumers, consuming, consuming locally and uh, kind of non-corporately, that may, if everybody starts to do that, and I think we are going to see a kind of pulling inward of local communities again, much as we actually did see in the 1930s, then uh, that may actually have some bigger effect that we didn't even realize. It sort of sets things off in a chain. That's on the kind of informal political level. The other thing is I do think uh, hopefully this crisis will actually dislarge people from their lethargy. People of all ages, and I welcome the fact that young people are here. 
because I think fundamentally this is an issue for young people. It's, you know, kind of folk like me that got us into this problem. <laughs> I think the boomers they deserve a certain amount of uh, 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 credit and blame for uh, what's happened. But uh, it's going to be your world in future, and so it's fundamentally important that young people get involved in local groups, local organizations, political, quasi-political groups, and really start to do some of the heavy lifting intellectually about thinking about what kind of new society we're going to create coming out of this. So. Thank you. Thanks. Hi, my name is Al Barnhill. Um, I have two uh, sets of questions I'd like to ask, and one is a huge one, and I'm not going to spend any time on it, but it has to do with the effects of corporate exploitation. I think that would take a few hours, if not months, to deal with. But the second one, and a more lighthearted question uh, in a serious discussion we're having, has to do with a former professor asking a current professor how you would evaluate or grade the uh, Stephen Harper uh, as Prime Minister in regard to his political economic performance. Hmm. <laughs> uh, I'll, uh, the, the big macro question first while I mull over how I will judiciously answer the second. Um, the, uh, I, I said earlier about the, I think there is a direct correlation here between inequality and the, the crisis we face. This actually is, you can find a uh, literature on this going back over the years where there were debates about what, uh, what degree of inequality is, in some sense, if you view it, necessary to a good economy, and on the other hand, what are the benefits of, of having a more equal society? Are there economic benefits for that? And, of course, the, uh, the neoliberal approach for the last 30 years was that kind of trickle-down theory, right? I mean, lots of money to the top uh, and, and, you know, for some reason, uh, you know, carrots at the top are really good, but you need sticks at the bottom. You beat people over the head with uh, unemployment and low wages at the bottom, and they work harder. But on the other hand, you pay CEOs $10 million a year, and they work even harder because you're rewarding them. So it's kind of a contradiction. This was uh, just a quick comment, a quote here from John Kenneth Galbraith, who is one of my favorite economists and favorite Canadians. Uh, he once referred to this as the theory that if you uh, – uh, left enough oats on the on the road for the mule. Uh, the mule uh, would would eat, and whatever came out at the other end would be really good for the pigeons. Uh, so I, I thought, you know, trickle down theory. I thought it was kind of an interesting way of description of it. Um, Stephen Harper as an economist. Uh, I actually, I've, I've never thought of. I don't think of Stephen Harper as an economist. And, and interesting enough, during the I think for political reasons during the election, it kept being hammered home. We're going into a crisis, and uh, he's an economist. And, uh, and I remember there was a column actually written by Preston Manning saying that this is why you should vote for him, because you were going into crisis. Who better would you want to, to do it but an economist? Well, Stephen Harper has an MA in economics from the University of Calgary, but his actual thesis was the economic effects on political cycles. So it was very much actually an argument about the effects of economic downturns and how it influences political voting. So it was actually more of a political science kind of argument, and I think it fits with his interest. Some of his moves, I frankly, even among mainstream economists, they've never actually thought that his policies made any sense. And I'll give you a couple of good examples. The GST cut. There's no mainstream economist. Yeah, you can find someone at the Fraser Institute if they thought that was maybe a great idea, but there's no mainstream economist at the time 
left, right, center, whatever, thought that getting rid of the GST was a great idea. And frankly, we're heading into a fairly major deficit right now because we gutted that GST. You know, if you had $13 billion more dollars, then we wouldn't necessarily be talking about deficits. We would still be, you know, we'd be in some crisis, but it wouldn't be the same. Second one is the whole issue about uh, uh, the um, uh, greenhouse, ga the taxes, right? What's the carbon, carbon tax, right? Uh, carbon tax makes actually perfect sense to all mainstream economists. And, you know, I'll give you a quick example here. You want to get rid of people smoking? Raise the tax. It's the most effective way we've ever come up with to get people to quit smoking. Forget about pictures of bad lungs and that. You'd think that should affect people, but it doesn't. It's hit them in the pocketbook. So we know that tax rates can affect public behavior, and economists know this. And, and there are many things. I mean, I've kind of berated economists here in economics, but, I mean, I actually, there, you know, I read a lot about this, and there's a lot of things I actually agree with. Uh, but, again, uh, what did they do? They, well, they beat up on it for political purposes and basically, I think, have so poisoned the idea of having a, tar a carbon tax that I don't know who will ever want to come back to it again. But great politics, lousy economics. Uh, and, uh, and so now he's flipped around in 180 degrees and has decided that, uh, you know, we're going to spin. Well, this is just kind of flailing around there. So uh, you, you, you take from that what you think about his uh, economics acumen. <laughs> my name is Van Christou, and uh, moderator Ian, I'd like to... Uh, I preface my remarks by thanking our, our speaker, uh, Professor Harrison, for bringing such a realistic uh, a message to us here today. Because of my Greek background, I have to make an apology here for the word democracy. You know, we've all been brainwashed into thinking that we're living in a democracy here in Canada, the Americans, and on and on and on. At a time when, when the misuse of the, of the uh, control over the distribution of the wealth, wealth of the world is so out of kilter. Where the rich are getting richer by the day and, and poor are getting poorer, uh, and where money is, is power, uh, there's no democracy uh, for the, for the, for the uh, starving. And, uh, and we're really being deceived into believing that we have a democracy when we're, we're living under conditions where the distribution of wealth is so out of kilter, locally, provincially, federally, and globally. Um, the question I, I would like to uh, ask, based on that, is do you feel that we are civilized enough to understand that distribution of wealth is important to the future of, of, of uh, our people? Hmm. Thank you. Very, very good question. Um, Quick comment first, by the way. Uh, five minutes? Uh, <clears throat> yes, we, uh, of course, we all realize, because we've all seen uh, my big fat Greek wedding, we all know that every word comes from Greek eventually. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm sort of hoping you have a bottle of Windex. You might be able to help me with my cold, too, here. Um, for those of you who have seen the, that movie, highly entertaining. Oh, well, the word economics also, of course, uh, comes from uh, Greek, and it refers to uh, protecting your own ho uh, household. And, uh, you know, we've, we've, in some sense, we've forgotten how to protect our own households here. Uh, are we civilized? I, you know, I guess civilization's a big word. 
I think a lot of people do understand, despite the fact we've been told for years that somehow economics and politics are separate from each other, most people understand in a realistic sense, they see it every day. They know the two things are really connected. And so how do we build towards being more democratic if we don't handle that other equation, the fact that inequality translates into political advantage? Uh, C.B. McPherson, again, we should be all proud of these wonderful Canadian thinkers. Uh, C.B. McPherson wrote years ago an awful lot about this, the fact that you, uh, you know, real democracy means one person, one vote. But in the marketplace, it means one dollar, one vote. And so you cannot have the, the weak spot in liberal democracy has always been that the political system, system is supposed to be democratic, but the economic system is not. And the two things always come into contradiction. Uh, so I think we understand that. And uh, we've debated these kinds of things for a long time, and I think we, it's, it's important we get back to debating them again. Final point here, actually, the Greeks used to talk about this, is if I remember correctly, I think Plato actually argued that in a good society, the ratio between the rich and the poor was about seven to one. Uh, well, we're a long ways off that, so. <laughs> Thanks. My name is Knut Peterson. Trevor, thanks a lot. Uh, my question is related to bankruptcies. The little country of Iceland basically went bankrupt. Could you fill us in about the U.S. of A. going bankrupt, or any other country for that matter? What, uh, what's the ramifications? The, uh, <clears throat> yeah, the case of the, the rule of thumb, so to speak, has always been that governments can't go bankrupt because they can always just keep printing money. Uh, Iceland does seem to be a fairly singular example. They, they ended up owing huge amounts of money, particularly to European countries. Uh, the United States will not go bankrupt, uh, partly because so many of its own corporations, they would, they would fear that other countries then wouldn't pay those corporations, you know, right? So if the United States says, says we're not going to pay... Um, but they are in real crisis, and the, the biggest thing that is going to happen, I think, is already happening, is a lot of the places that have been lending the money are going to be much less likely to keep lending the money, and that's particularly China. Uh, so I've, I've been writing and saying for some years that the chits are going to start coming in, and they're going to keep coming in. Uh, on the other hand, interesting enough, there is an old phrase, and I'll, I'll leave this with you. There's an old saying that used to go that if you owed the bank a thousand dollars, it was your problem. But if you owed the bank a million dollars, it was the bank's problem. And and uh, you know, let's let's kind of you know, inflation and all that. Let's think in terms of fifty-three trillion. Uh, the the, a lot of countries are now scared about if they start to really pull the rug out from under the United States, how do they get their money? And so there's a kind of a built-in incentive. You keep lending to the person hoping that they'll eventually be able to pay it off. But uh, the reality is you also know that this person can't pay it off and this country cannot pay it off and they're going to be paying it off until well into the late, late part of this century. And so that's a problem for everybody at this point. So, Thank you. This was uh, really wonderful. Thank you.